That's why Dagen uh, is the mayor. You know, people didn't go out and vote. I was trying to find out if he was living in the mansion. You know, which Charlie told me he wasn't, so I put a private eye to find out if he was. No bullshit news. It's a big corruption umbrella. Okay. And what he is, this is white justice and black justice. I could live 10,000 lifetimes and never live up to the name of the Honorable Coleman Young. It's hard when we, we pay our taxes, our property taxes and everything, and it gets turned around and put into for development profit. No bullshit news. Tuning in, friends. This week I'm in Poland speaking at an international literary festival. We'll be celebrating the release there of my latest book, Shit Show, The Country's Collapsing and the Ratings Are Great. It also comes out in the paperback version this week in the United States of America. Shit Show picks up where my last book, Detroit, An American Autopsy, leaves off. Is Detroit an outlier in America, or is it the epicenter of the downward American spiral? And what in the hell is wrong with the media? In Shit Show, we visit the gas fields of North Dakota, the burning streets of Ferguson, Missouri, the empty industrial lots of Flint, Michigan, the American factories in Mexico, on the campaign trail with Trump, and take a moonlight ride with the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. It takes a peek behind the television news makeup mirror. It's a wild ride, and it's the only book I know of that is written in this era from the American streets. So enjoy the following excerpts from the audio version of Shit Show that I narrated. And if you'd like an autographed copy of the paperback, you can order it on our website at nobsnewshour.com or purchase one at Amazon. But first, a word from our sponsors. American Coney Island celebrating 102 years. It is Detroit's oldest family-run restaurant and birthplace of the famous Detroit Coney Dog with chili mustard and Vidalia onions. And it's my personal favorite, and that's no bullshit. You want a piece of Detroit? Head downtown to the corner of Lafayette and Michigan Avenue. Can't miss it. It's the red, white, and blue building shaped like a slice of delicious pie. Always delicious. Always open, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. The dogs snap when you bite them, and the chili is a 102-year-old family recipe made especially for the American Coney dog, and the beer is cold. Visit the Detroit restaurant or the one in the D Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada, or, hey dads, the Detroit Zoo. They sell beer there too. Or... You can order a Coney Island kit straight to your or a friend's door. Go to AmericanConeyIsland.com. And Luke Nowacki, there's always Luke. Maybe you're a big-time city official who can travel with your entourage on the city's dime. Maybe you can hook up your girlfriend with government contracts. But if you're not among the elite who can make your pals pockets fat off the taxpayer's back, you're going to have to provide for your own retirement and theirs. If you have questions whether you're on the right track, call financial specialist Luke Nowacki at 248-663-4748. Grow your assets from pension planning to college savings plans. Your politicians are depending on you. 
Luke Nowacki, 248-663-4748. And remember, Securities and Investment Advisory Services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Royal Alliance Associates, Inc. is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of Royal Alliance Associates, Inc. ADR Consultants providing full business construction management and IT consulting services for your company, municipality, and law enforcement agency. ADR, experienced, overseeing more than $250 million in private and public construction projects since 2001. Need to reduce costs, need to re-engineer processes, or find better vendors? ADR has saved clients millions. ADR consultants are experts in procurement, compliance, and minority participation. They're honest, ethical, smart. Call Barry Ellentuck at 248-318-9424 for a consultation. Get the job done right, on time, on budget. ADR Consultants, 248-318-9424. And now, shit show. Black Gold, North Dakota, winter. A shitty room near Fort Berthold, halfway between Minot and Williston, was going for $250 a night minimum. A bunkmate would cost an extra 50 But you could barely get a room anyway because the joint was so jammed. Bob and Matt, my two camera guys, and I managed to snatch the last room. They took the single beds. I rolled a bag out on the floor, which was sticky and smelled like sewage and slag. A literal cracker box, this place, packed to the lip with white men from Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, Idaho, looking for a last chance. Out-of-work men trying to hold the marriage together, trying to keep the house back home. They were told there were jobs up here in the oil fields. Ten billion barrels waiting to be fracked out of the shale deep below the frozen Dakota Plains. Rumor was these were good-paying jobs where a man could pull down a hundred grand in a year. All humps welcome and all humps came. A hundred grand! That will make the old lady happy, said one of the good old boys as he smoked a menthol and sipped on a Bud Light in the frozen parking lot of the shitbox motel that evening. That'd keep her from taking the kids and walking away. Or worse, leaving the kids and walking away. Good old boy wasn't staying in the motel, he said, because the talk about all that money was a lie. His explanation went like this. You'd make the hundred grand all right if you could find the work. But even if you found the work, you're working 100 hours a week and the work ain't steady because so many good old boys with a nutsack packed their trucks and stomped the accelerator and barreled due north to this wild wasteland hoping for one last chance. So without the money, this good old boy was sleeping in his truck in the parking lot despite the fact it was January and minus 45 outside with the wind blowing. And even then, he had to pay the night clerk 20 bucks for the privilege of a parking space. Just be gone by sunup before the manager showed up. They found a body out there, he went on, throwing his chin toward the darkness that marked the edge of town. In a ditch out there, past where the lights run out, wrapped in a mattress, shot in the head, frozen, Mexican guy. What the fuck are Mexicans doing all the way up here? Mexicans? They're like modern-day Chinese, I told them. They'll go anywhere. Go to the Congo, there's a Chinese restaurant. Detroit, Chinese restaurant. If your guts are rumbling with emptiness, you'll pretty much go anywhere. Kind of like you, I said. I don't know, he mumbled. 
All's I know is there's a fucking frozen burrito in a ditch out there. This place is wild, son. It sucks. I can't wait to get a little bankroll and get the fuck gone. Back inside the motel, the stench had changed like an old factory mood ring. It now reeked of stale sweat and oil, smoke and rotten beer. Someone in a room down the hall was shrieking and was blowing through the thin plasterboard, but no one said a thing. Someone got some bad meth. Or some good meth. Hard to tell. Drug-induced paranoia is just one degree away from euphoria. Best not to open the door in any case. Best to have a beer and monitor the madman in case he came crashing through the thin walls or started shooting the place up. Matt went to sleep with a pillow over his head. Bob snored over the ruckus. I lay awake, shivering on the floor, listening to the lunatic howl until dawn. The morning sun came late, white and dead. Ice crystals sparkled on the prairie grass. No trees, bold rugged tundra. Fort Berkthold was on the way to the burgeoning town of Williston, the epicenter of the Bakken Formation, which was said to be producing more oil than any other place in America, even Alaska's Arctic Circle. About a third of that production came from Fort Berthold, the once impoverished Indian reservation that was a little less impoverished now, but nevertheless impoverished, home to the three affiliated tribes, the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara, the adoptive people of Sacagawea. Over the years, the tribes had seen their territory whittled down by white theft to less than a million acres. First came the ranchers, then the railroads, and finally, in 1953, the Army Corps of Engineers, who dammed the Missouri River, flooding about 150,000 acres of the best land and forcing the Indians onto the rugged, barren foothills. Funny thing about rugged, barren foothills, they tend to contain gold and uranium and oil. Across the rolling hills of the Rez, methane gas flares from fracking wells leased to white man wildcatters blew like Roman candles. But little of the money they generated seemed to be making its way to the people of the affiliated tribes, who had sued, claiming the federal government facilitated the theft of more than $1 billion by failing in its legal obligation to make sure the tribe was looked after. White speculators and New York hedge funds were buying up leasing rights for a song. $35 an acre. The res had become an ecological wasteland of oil spills and trucking roads and filthy air, and it was unclear what effect the polymers pumped down to break the oil shale might have on the health of the Missouri River above. Think about that whenever you see the blue flames of a cooking stove. To make matters worse, the white man also claimed right-of-way for an oil and gas pipeline under the newly created sacred Lake Sacagawea. If they had known what their land would look like today, I'm sure the natives would have slit Lewis and Clark's throats, severed their hairy heads, and floated them back down the Missouri River to St. Louis. But that was all water under the bridge. These days, the tribal government was like the white man's government. Rotten, self-serving, kleptomaniacal. Tex Hall, the tribe's chairman had been helping himself with a lucrative oil services business on the side, pairing up with a white businessman who had a long, violent rap sheet in Oregon. As we were driving through North Dakota, it hit the local papers that Hall's white man was suspected of two business-related murders for hire, one in Spokane, Washington, and one right here on the reservation, on Hall's property, no less, the victim bludgeoned to death in the chairman's garage, the theory went. Something about an argument over an oil lease. Authorities believe his body was buried out in the oil fields. 
While Hall's white partner was convicted in 2016 in the man's slaying, Hall denied involvement in the crime and, to date, has never been directly implicated. As for Tex Hall's perfidy, fattening himself while supposedly representing people who straggled around sucking dirty air and who, on average, died before they were able to collect Social Security? Well, there was nothing in the tribal constitution that forbade it, the most august sachem told the newspapers. Sovereignty by the barrel, he declared. The receptionist at the drab tribal government offices told me the chairman did not wish to speak to media that day. The chairman was at once ill and overwhelmed, attending to the welfare of his great nation. Hmm. I have an appointment, I reminded her. I've come a long way. I'm sorry. I'm native too. Ojibwe, does that count for anything? I'm sorry. The chairman is not available. That's a strange name for an Indian chief, I said, showing my annoyance. Tex. His native name is Red-Tipped Arrow, she explained. Nevertheless, as I've said, the chairman is not available and cannot see you right now. In the middle of the res, past the oil derricks and tractor trailers and white men trudging around in canvas freezer suits, manning the oil pumps, was a bridge that spanned the sacred artificial lake. From there, you could see a shining example of the chairman's magnanimity, his gift to his people, the fantastic development project purchased with oil money that would bring his ancient tribe into the 21st century, past the casino, and there, right near the bait shop. A new hospital, you ask? A factory? A vocational school? No. A two-deck party yacht on cinder blocks. The Island Girl. Cost? Two and a half million dollars. She was supposed to be a casino boat, a gem that would make the reservation a tourist destination as well as an oil field. Problem is, someone forgot to remind Commodore Tex that the lake had been freezing over since 1953. Sovereignty by the barrel. Williston, the white burg to the west of Fort Berkthold, was being called the fastest growing town in America. The neon and asphalt and construction equipment were testament to a population that had doubled in five years to 25,000 people. But that was only a measure of the people who actually stayed in Williston and put down roots. It didn't include the huge transient population of desperate men looking to pop in, strike it rich, and hightail it home. Partly as a result of that influx, this one sleepy town of Methodist churches and tidy brick homes now had the prevailing character of a dirty hooker working at a truck stop near the end of town. And chances were you would find dirty hookers at the truck stop between the Holiday Inn and the Kentucky Fried Chicken and the El Rancho Hotel and the pop-up man camps and the impromptu trailer parks at the edge of town. The word was a new millionaire was minted in North Dakota every month. But where did these magnets live? Where were their mansions, their penthouses? A local radio evangelist, I heard him on the AM dial while driving across the plains, was preaching about toothpaste tubes at Kennedy Airport security and the lack of humanity in New York and the need to trust Jesus here in the oil patch. Jesus brings in her peace as well as a piece of the pie. I heard this and I knew I had to meet this man of divine perceptions. Preacher Ron Evett, lived in a simple colonial in a neighborhood of worn and stained aluminum siding. The son of a door-to-door Gideon Bible salesman, Evett studied petroleum engineering at the University of Wyoming. He bought land with credit cards in the early aughts, hit oil, and became a rich man. And with the price of a barrel of crude at 
$107.57. He was getting richer with every upstroke of the horse head, but money wasn't enough. The preacher desired souls, men, followers, acolytes, ratings. Yes, a piece of the Nielsen cake. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if his show can't outperform NPR in red state country? The preacher in the patch, oil patch that is, was his catchy tag out. But even so, the preacher found few ears for his paid radio spots, a few among the inmates at the county jail, a few druggies sleeping in their trucks, still fewer among the workers out at the wells. The well hands lusted after money, not salvation. We decided to film Evan on a little proselytizing jaunt out to one of his wellheads. He brought pizza. People are more likely to sit and listen that way, he said. A little pepperoni adds spice to prayer. The workers were all white men, and it dawned on me that I hadn't seen a solitary black man in North Dakota, nor had I seen a native man working in the oil fields. I had seen an Asian man cooking at a grubby Chinese restaurant in Minot, however, and there was that Mexican found in the culvert, wrapped in a spring mattress tortilla, sleeping the eternal sleep. But that's it. We arrived at the wellhead with the preacher deep in the plains near the Canadian border. The wind had shifted, blowing in from the north now. It was blistering cold. So cold, your fingers and toes burned, and your face felt as if it had been scored with a sanding wheel. I had done time in slaughterhouses, but this had to be the toughest, most glum work I'd ever seen. This ain't real work, said Bobby, a truck driver from Arkansas, as he waited to pump out fracking detritus from one of the preacher's holding tanks and dump it God knows where. This ain't the dream. This ain't the classic nine-to-five American dream. This is shit. You gotta work nearly three full-time jobs if you wanna make that hundred thousand. They don't tell you that before you come. You're tired, you're cold, you're beat down and lonely. A lot of guys don't have much experience on rigs or driving a truck, and that just makes the whole thing that much more dangerous. He continued, The preacher? I just tell him, no thanks. I'm an atheist. There's no God. Look around. You see God? Me? My wife left. There's nothing back for me in Arkansas. I'm just trying to put a lump together, buy me a shack in the woods in Idaho and disappear forever. That's all I want, a shack. That's my American dream. Back in the worker's trailer, the preacher was working the men. He prayed, but they didn't. The pizza was swallowed, but the message wasn't. The preacher, more Opie Taylor than Howard Hughes, with his bowl haircut and denim jacket, had little more success at the trailer park back near town. There were some families there, but it was single men mostly, bunking together, refusing to answer the door. Those that did bitterly informed the millionaire minister that they didn't need no prayers. They needed work. They needed money. The preacher said he would pray for them anyway, which was easy for him to do since the preacher owned himself those couple of producing oil wells. Looking around the shabby snow-swept park with its invisible spirit of perdition and the legion of stay-at-homes and shut-ins and alcoholics, I thought, what had God wrought? I asked the preacher if he thought this is what the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had in mind for men. Yeah, well, the preacher fumbled. No, he finally admitted. Not really. Most of them aren't going to find that dream. I tracked down Williston's mayor, Ward Kozer, in his offices in a shabby building off the main street, not unlike the Indian City Hall, red brick made dull by soot and dust and mud, kicked up by incessant semi-traffic. He was stepping down after 20 years in office. 
He began with a don't-get-me-wrong preamble, which instantly made me think there was something wrong on the Great Plains. It's great, the mayor said. The development, the millions in construction, the new people. Yeah, but. Yes, but. There are the problems. All right, you're the media. You want to hear about the problems, right? Well, yeah, right, I said, having been exposed. The good news stuff is boring. Bad TV. Everybody's reported the production numbers and the mythological hundred grand. But what about the meth and prostitution and homelessness? If it wouldn't be improper, the mayor said in a steady monotone, I would like to pay their way to go back to where they came from. Much of the rowdiness went on down by the rail station, the mayor told us. So naturally, we went down there, down on Front Street, by the railroad tracks that ran parallel to the Missouri River, a mini man camp of trucks and RVs had sprung up. Before the oil rush, people didn't move to Williston. They moved away from it. But here they were, newcomers, brought in by train or bus or wheezing vehicle, suffocating from desperation, without housing or companionship, sleeping in vans. Men shambling around down by the tracks. The hiring hall was here in Railroad Park, but it never seemed to be hiring. There was the Salvation Army, which occasionally ladled out hot soup at noon, but you had to bow your head for it. Then there was the bus station and the train depot, a coffee shop and five bars on Main Street, two of them strip joints, whispers, and heartbreakers. Never one for idle gossip, I passed by whispers and walked into heartbreakers. It was simple to see why they called the place that. Four scruffy rummies at the rail, Animal busts on the wall, a mangy carpet, a mangy pole, a DJ booth. The TV was turned to cable news. I don't know why they thought some chubby young white man wearing granny specs yammering on with the sound turned all the way down would be interesting to a strip joint full of desperados, but there it was. TV. Someone had been stabbed outside whispers recently, the lady bartender told me assuring me at the same time that I was in the more classy establishment. People like to do that out west, I said, stabbing. Stabbing is much more neighborly, much more intimate and Christian than your basic drive-by shooting. That's city shit. Stab a guy in the eye. He sees it coming. That's the gentlemanly thing to do. Oh, she said, giggling. We had someone shot and killed outside just a few months ago, too. You get all kinds around here. The bartender was a Mormon from Idaho. She was a nicely put-together brunette, halter top and shorts, too cold for the weather, but a gal's got to advertise. Her daddy wasn't happy about her situation, she said, but what daddy didn't know. Not that I'm that type of girl. I'm just a bartender. But there are some who can keep you company. Everybody needs company. A man is nothing but a stray without a companion. $300. That's a lot of money for a few minutes in a mop closet, I said. Price goes up when you smell, she tittered, tossing a thumb toward some greasy oil men. I went out for a cigarette to consider it. I was in for the details, for the story, you understand, your intrepid reporter with his dispatch from the American Dream, a $300 rumpus in a toilet stall in the train depot. Something about the image amused me. But you wouldn't be able to fob off something like that on an expense report. Just then, a hobo living out of his truck called to me from his window asking to mooch a cigarette. I went over. A Mexican guy from Vegas. Man, these Mexican dudes will go anywhere, just like the Chinese. He told me he came out three months ago, worked for a little bit, but couldn't find nothing no more. Please ran me out of the park, he said. 
so I'm sleeping down here. But the gas is getting low, and I've got to keep the motor running all night or I'm going to freeze. You see the problem I'm in, amigo? You see the problems I got? Gas runs out, and I'm a popsicle. You understand? I'm not asking for a handout. No, not asking for charity. I seen you come out of the club. Maybe you're a little lonely or something. I could suck your cock for 20 bucks. I'm not asking for charity or nothing. I'm willing to work for it. 20 bucks? Come again? Okay. 15 bucks? There was real hope in his voice. What in Christ's name was this, preacher man? An angry, desperate backwater, glowering orange and neon in the stinging light, covered in mud and salt and ice, inhabited by gravelot hound dogs snarling on the chain, willing to lick your balls if a scoop of gravy came along with it. I didn't like this place. There was no American dream. Not here. We were all going to have to move on and keep looking. No? All right, he said. Then thank you very much for the cigarillo. God bless. God bless. Yes, sir, God bless. Say, listen, sorry to ask, but you got a little extra change? A little something? Another cigarette? I felt bad for the guy. I didn't have the heart to tell him he was probably pricing himself well below market rate. I gave him ten bucks and another smoke. Thank you, yes, gracias. I'm hoping to turn it around. A little luck. I'm hoping to hear back about a job tomorrow. If that happens, you know, then my troubles are over. A little luck. That's all that's needed. What's going on in this country? Unions stand against those trends. We've got to somehow insulate the robust American economy from this global economy that seems to want to devour our standard of living. James P. Hoffa, Teamsters President. No generation has ever had the opportunity that all of us now have to build a global economy that leaves no one behind. It's a wonderful opportunity. Former United States President Bill Clinton. I've made this argument before. I'll make it again. We are part of a global economy. We're not reversing that. Former United States President Barack Obama. This is a major day in Michigan's history. Again, I don't view this as anti-union at all. I believe it is pro-worker. Michigan Governor Rick Snyder. The American dream was dying. It was dying not only in Williston and the small towns from which men there fled, but in the very place it was created. It was a cold afternoon when thousands of union members were chanting on the Capitol grounds as the outgoing Republican-led legislature voted to make Michigan the 24th right-to-work state in America. That meant a person who worked in a union shop was not required to pay union dues, but would still receive any benefits the union negotiated for its members. It was death for organized labor, which had been dying for many years anyway. Even union members don't like paying dues, so who in his right mind would pay for something he could get for free? The same thing was going on in Wisconsin with the public sector employees. And like in Wisconsin, the governor of Michigan thought his coup de grace against collective bargaining pro-worker and freedom of choice was his preferred Orwellian phraseology, might be parlayed into a bid for the White House. It was shocking, to Michigan members at least, considering that the United Auto Workers was celebrating the 75th anniversary of its birth in Flint just down the road. It didn't take a fucking hundred years, one beefy protester lamented to me on the state house steps. His placard read, Union Till I Die. I told him I hope he still had his health care because death was coming sooner rather than later. He didn't laugh. You think that's funny, he hissed. 
This is the North, motherfucker. This is Michigan, and they're turning us into fucking Mississippi. Mississippi. He was close, but it wasn't exactly Mississippi. Ooh, I like it. David Hall took a chance on my brother Drew Lane and his Drew and Mike podcast back in 2016. And that's led to many listeners saving money on their mortgages and refinancings. Now Hall Financial is putting his support behind the No Bullshit News Hour and the new Red Shovel Network. So thank you, David. Hall Financial offers lower rates, better options, and the personal attention you want when talking about your home. The average refi takes 44 days. Hall Financial averages 19 days. Do the math. That's half the time. Good too. Email dhall at hallfg.com to get the paper moving or call 248-308-5000. Or maybe you just want to take equity out of your home or shorten the length of your mortgage. You could be less than three weeks from saving money with Hall Financial. Email dhall at hallfg.com or call 248-308-5000. Tell them you heard it on No BS News because I appreciate him giving us and the network a shot. NMLS number 1467435. Hall Financial. You won't be disappointed. What's up, Doc? Dr. Yaldo. You hate your reading glasses? You hate your bifocals? You forget them, you lose them, you break them? You'd give anything not to need them anymore. You can be done with old-fashioned technologies. Dr. Yaldo has helped over 50,000 metro area people get 20-20 vision or better with what's called CATS Custom LASIK, the most advanced in the world, and the amazing multifocal lens implants for people 50-plus. It'll give you great near and far vision for life, and you'll never get cataracts. No matter what, everyone should get an eye exam, and regular insurance covers that. And see if LASIK or multifocal lens implants are right for you. That evaluation is free if you call 1-800-398-EYES and say Leduff sent you, and you'll get the no-bullshit discount. That's 800 398 E-Y-E-S or go to YaldoEyeCenter.com Now, shit show. St. Louis Blues. Ferguson, Missouri. Summer. We went airborne like Steve McQueen and Bullet. Except this wasn't a 68 Fastback. It was a tired old SUV that made funny noises and had too many miles on it. I was hauling ass uphill, but didn't know there was a steep drop-off in the road, which cut through the north end of town. We hit the hill's peak at 80 miles an hour, maybe, and were launched airborne at an angle. We would either take out a light pole or plow through the vestibule of the church beyond it. The vestibule may have been the preferred outcome. First responders are usually busy during a riot. Plow through a church, and the carnage could prove so spectacular that an ambulance just might arrive in time to save your lives. But two reporters wrapped around a light pole, take two aspirin, and call me in the morning, son. Oh, fuck!
Doc. Matt and I squalled like duct tape Tomcats as we touched down, clipped the curb, bounced twice, and righted the truck, avoiding misadventure altogether. Getting off the accelerator, we crept up to the corner of Ferguson's West Florissant Avenue, where we would see fresh flames erupt and masked figures dancing in the shadows. We had been to this corner earlier in the day when thousands came out to celebrate the police pullout after a long, ugly week of military-style occupation. The twisted remnants of the burned-out quick-trip gas station were dark, banners still hanging on the chain-link fence now surrounding it. Hands up. Don't shoot. The gas station had been a victim of innuendo and whisper, a rumor ricocheting through the apartment complex nearby that someone who worked there had called the police and said 18-year-old Michael Brown, a black man, had robbed the place. Whether the rumor was true or not, the cops had arrived, setting in motion a series of disputed events that ended with the unarmed Brown lying dead in the street, plugged six times in the head, chest, arm, and hand by a white officer's gun. Burn the motherfucker to the ground! The chant went up. A bacchanalia fire erupted. The looting of rims and tires by a couple of assholes whetted the press's appetite, and cable news started playing up that angle. The animals. Then came the martial response, the tear gas and jackboots, the mass police officers dressed like SEAL Team 6, the curfews and the riot shields, the no loitering rule and the arrests. It was a shit show, tailor-made for the ravenous and bottomless news maw. In the days that followed, the quick trip had become a shrine, a sanctum, the Nicanor gate of a movement. Ministers, gangsters, elderly curiosity seekers, politicians, and neighborhood children came to gather, pray, discuss, gossip, to exchange conspiracies, bits of news, and mutual affirmations, and to conduct interviews with the media. Media. So much media. A spectacle. A big-top news circus broadcasting live from the scene 24-7 with reporters in the requisite makeup. It is not very well known that the foundation of men's TV makeup is women's makeup. I refuse to wear it. And khaki impromptu sets erected in the parking lots of storage garages and Chinese restaurants. No story too small. Come one, come all. A mind troupe came by to stage a silent play for the camera's benefit. And then a breakdancing company. And why not? This is a terrible tragedy, but one can't turn down free publicity. Ferguson is part of America, don't you know? And yet serious things were discussed here. The outrage at Ferguson and St. Louis police... Black while driving, it was absolutely understood that four black men to a car is dangerous for your health if you're one of the black men in the car. The backwardness of Missouri, the crackerland of all crackerlands, one of the last states to give up the institution of slavery, which, in the minds and daily experiences of those convened here, never fully went away. The man always had his boot on your head. The lockups and beatdowns, the court fines, a modern-day peonage, the county jail, just a different version of the old convict lease system. I'm proud of my people, a young, excitable black man named Brian told me of the burning and pillaging. It was an anthem, he said, a black fist, a cry for attention, payback for Trayvon Martin. The unarmed 17-year-old black kid had been killed not by a cop, by a half-white, half-Latino dope working the neighborhood watch shift. Still, close enough. 
Then there was Eric Garner getting choked out by police just for trying to sell loose cigarettes for a buck in Staten Island, New York, a town where cigarettes go for $14 a pack. He was trying to feed six kids. Why not write him a ticket for loitering? Why you got to choke him out? An economic situation turned into a racial standoff, turned into another corpse of a black man. And then there's Rodney. You can never forget Rodney King. Y'all saw it, the beatdown. Now, Brian explained, St. Louis Scott's Michael. This one's ours. This shit goes back to slavery, and we're going to get our justice. The eruption was a spontaneous, violent appeal for a stake in this thing called America. And if men like Brian and Charles and Kerwin and Delmont, who were hanging out at the quick trip, didn't get it, then the whole of metropolitan St. Louis, white and black and Arab, would burn. That was a promise. As for the tires and rims that were looted last time around, fuck it, Brian said. That's beside the point. Just a little booty to go along with the justice, a tithing for the high priest of disobedience. I wish I would have been here. You want to hit this blunt here? There wasn't an awakening here in outer St. Louis, and a dead 18-year-old who had his hands up was the deliverance. Whether Michael Brown really did have his hands up was still a matter of contention. It was clear he had no weapon. But if his friend was going to stand there in the hot summer sun and tell everybody on cable TV that he did have his hands up and cable TV was going to broadcast it unchecked, then that's the way it happened, at least to the black community here. Michael had his hands up. He was executed. That's what Brian and his friends believe anyway. There were, of course, two versions, the black version and the white version. The cop shot the kid in the back, unprovoked. While he had his hands up, he'd been stopped in the middle of the street for no reason other than he was black. That was one. The second version, the white version, went that the imposing 300-pound man who had strong-armed the quick-trip convenience store minutes earlier attacked the cop. This version went that the officer had simply asked the young man and his friend to remove themselves from the middle of the street and kindly use the sidewalk. Brown freaked, punched the cop, and reached for the officer's gun. Fearing for his life, the officer, naturally, had to use deadly force. Either way, shamefully, Brown's body lay for more than four hours in the street in front of the Campfield Green Apartments under the August sun, the police not even bothering to cover him up with a sheet. People looked on, whispered among themselves, whispered some more, and it began to brew. Cops beating ass and dropping unarmed black men that was nothing new here in Missouri or anywhere in America, but something else was also afoot in Ferguson, another instigator, something unseen yet tangible and hard-fisted, a larger, more menacing enemy, the government. Ferguson couldn't afford itself. The bureaucracy was too big for the tax base. The city hall and the police department remained overwhelmingly white while the town over the last decade had changed color. In order to balance its books, the city leaders did not slash their own jobs or significantly pare their budgets. Instead, they decided to shake down Ferguson's residence, and they used the police to do it. Two-thirds of Ferguson was black, but 90% of the police force was white, and 85% of the police stops were of blacks. 90% of searches were of blacks, and 95% of arrests were of blacks, even though studies by the state and federal governments 
showed that whites were more likely to be carrying contraband while driving. In addition, a full 95% of citations for driving while distracted, failure to comply, or a strange offense until then unknown to me, manner of walking, were issued to blacks. According to a Department of Justice report, when Ferguson's courts collected more than $2 million in 2012, doubling the haul from the previous year, the city manager, who was white, fired off an email to the chief of police, who was also white. Awesome! Thanks! He wrote, but you didn't have to tell this to young black men like Brian. They lived it. The exorbitant court fees, the penalties for late payment, getting your ass beat by deputies in lockup, and then being charged for the cost of getting your blood cleaned off the deputies' uniforms were too much for any man to stand. Add in a dead teenager lying for hours on a skillet hot street, and you've got yourselves the makings of a civil disturbance. The government isn't for people, Brian said, now sipping on a gin and juice. I don't know where he got it, he just got it. Not just the cocktail, but the philosophy. The government is the enemy of the people. The government is eating the people alive. Sip? Shit, I thought. He sounded like Carrie Dan on the High Desert Plateau. Or Little Dog out on the Bundy Ranch. Or the old girl in the Flint Trailer Park. The government is against me. Tyranny. Rage against the machine. Caving to the nightly pressure of TV cameras showing military policing methods in Ferguson, the authorities not only released the name of the officer who had shot Michael Brown, Darren Wilson, they also backed off and backed away, and the week-long state of emergency was lifted, emboldening black people with the feeling that they had driven out the occupying force, a street gang in blue, the army of the enemy. Gone were the armored personnel vehicles, the cops in camouflage and body armor, staring through their scopes that can target out to 500 meters, pointing 5.56 millimeter rifles at citizens for no worthwhile reason. The governor even put a black man in charge of the police, Captain Roland Johnson of the State Highway Patrol. Under the captain's direction, officers allowed folks to stand on the sidewalk now as they pleased. And the people did. Gin and juice souped-up cars laying rubber in the road, prayer circles, people wanting to show their children the moment it all happened. The victory, cars backed up to the highway, the new Black Panthers directing traffic. A celebrity even showed up, but not as popular a figure around here as one might have thought. Fuck Jesse, why is he coming now? Where the fuck's he been? Shit, posing for the cameras. And fuck it, man, I'm gonna get me a picture. Hey, Jesse, let me get a selfie. It was both peaceful and electric. For one brief, shining afternoon, it was a victory for the black side of St. Louis, a place short on winds. And then darkness came. We hung out on the corner till about 11 o'clock. All was peaceful, so we'd gone back to the hotel to have something to eat and wash our faces. Then Matt called me in my room. He was watching looters on the local TV station. It was being broadcast by a camera far away with a powerful zoom lens. Not a cameraman worth his salt was willing to walk into the mayhem of Molotov cocktails and mass marauders swiping meat and hair extensions, liquor, and premium brand cigarettes. We banged on Bob's door. He was out cold, sleeping, and could not be woke above his snoring. We left him in bed and barreled for West Florissant Avenue. We pulled up just past the gas station at the strip mall, aptly named as it was being stripped clean. 
A new government had arisen in the void, a new grouping of imposed values. The mob, locusts, anarchy, selfish destruction with no binding morality. And who comes walking by just then, humming and happy, like he'd just gotten kissed at the homecoming dance? Brian! Good old Brian! Out for a night of sightseeing! The cops got in their cars and left, he told us. Just got up and got gone, motherfuckers. He was right. The police were nowhere to be found. It must be some sort of mistake. The place was burning, so I called 911. Local dispatch referred me to the county police, but would not connect me. I called the county police, who referred me to the state police. I called the state police, who referred me back to the local police. It was a big fuck you to Ferguson. You want to fuck with us, they seem to be saying? You want to burn your own shit down? Have at it. Matt grabbed his giant P2 camera and tripod out of the SUV and began filming. The camera is much too big for a riot and has an eyepiece that requires one to place his temple against the casing, which creates a blind spot for the cameraman since he has one eye closed while he films, the other stuffed in the viewfinder, robbing him of his vision. The mob that Matt could not see ebbed and flowed around him, some attracted by the flames, some by the camera. Matt was occupied by the explosion of an incendiary bomb which shattered the plate glass of Sam's Meat Market and more. Flames started licking out of the window. As Matt filmed, someone grabbed his camera by the lens. Fuck off, Matt shouted. It was a weasel of a little white guy, masked, dressed in black like a ninja, except this was no Bruce Lee. He was a wisp, a ferret with a weak chin, a high-pitched nasal voice. He most likely belonged to one of those anarchist or anti-fascist left-wing groups that now seem to jet into civil disturbances and break shit. A privileged white guy out for thrills, railing against the machine I suspected he was so much part of. Hey, man, stop filming, he squealed. That's snitching. You're snitching, man. That's so uncool to be filming, man. I shoved him in the chest. Don't touch the fucking camera, I said. And what the fuck are you doing here? You're a bucket of fucking chum. You're somebody's lunch if you don't be careful. The crowd around us seemed to enjoy the spectacle, and the white kid moved on, muttering, That's snitching, man. That's snitching, man. I wondered if Daddy gave him an allowance. Sitting on the steps of Sam's was another masked man, a large pistol stuffed in his waistband. This guy was the stereotypical fear of a black planet come to life. He was long and muscular, dark as obsidian, handsome with dreadlocks. And the gun, that was the topper. He was shouting at a mob of about a dozen men who were trying to make their way into the store. I signaled to Matt, and we walked right into the beehive and sat down next to him. You wouldn't know it using a long lens, but here on the steps, in the wan yellow light, a remarkable scene was playing out. The long, dark man was no criminal, no looter. He was the only thing around that could pass as law and order. He was trying to keep the mob out of the Arab store. Y'all ain't even from around here, he shouted. This shit's ignorant. His name was DJ. He said he was from around here. He was raising a son around here. He shopped in this store. He didn't want some drunk assholes burning down his neighborhood or the world contorting his meaning of Ferguson, having images of looters supplanting the peaceful calls for justice earlier in the day. Considering the seemingly selfish and cowardly behavior of the police, DJ was the only thing out here that represented order. Some faces of the mob were masked with T-shirts, but their eyes glistened with booze 
and purpose. They looked at me and then said to DJ, you friends with the devil? I'm friends with everybody, DJ answered with feeling, but we ain't got a loot. They inched toward the store, skulking like scavengers, daring DJ to plug one of them. We're gonna eat out of this motherfucker. What could DJ do? Shoot him? What would that accomplish? More death, more ignominy to his community. He threw his hands in the air, muttered a few bitter words, and disappeared into the night. With the pistol gone, the crowd emptied the store, then turned on us. Turn off the camera, motherfucker! I told Matt to keep filming. We weren't going to get run off that corner. We were going to do our job, and then we were going to leave, like men. It was our country, too. My countrymen are not my enemies. Besides, we were on TV. Images matter. I wasn't going out looking like a pussy. Luda bottles started flying, then batteries. A guy from nowhere emerged with a heavy orange traffic cone and hit me over the head. I stood my ground. Fighting or fleeing, either one could lead to a head stomping. You never know in a crowd. The dude took a swing at the camera and Matt, with his face buried in the viewfinder, never saw it coming. The eyepiece snapped and the rioter slipped back into the mob. That's when a man, a black man, in leather gloves and a shirt as tight as a prophylactic, appeared from the recesses and ushered us back to our truck. That's enough. You gotta go. Thank you, my brother. Was the attack racially motivated? Did the crowd come at us because of our skin color, our hair texture, the way we carried ourselves? Did outsiders need to be pelted, cut, and beaten? Was this a payback for Michael Brown? Maybe. A little, I suppose. Again, this is America, remember? And color matters. But mostly, I figure, the attack was based on the fact, and this is a provable fact, that people don't like being filmed while committing felonies. The company was pleased. Great footage. They wanted us to make a black mob attacks white reporters internet clip. But Matt and I and bleary-eyed Bob all agreed we would not race bait. The story was DJ, not the B-Town. We wanted to provide a positive image if such a thing could be said to exist amid the looting and rioting. There was something deeper here, something with a conscience, something with a higher truth. Things might be fucked up in America, but we could fix them. America is the greatest experiment in the history of humankind, a nation composed of tribes striving to overcome ancient impulses, a society improving itself through reason rather than destroying itself through violence. I chose to believe we are more like DJ than the few dozen dumbasses stealing and burning. The poetry of the man, his manner and grace of speech, his bravery in a dark place where the world would never suspect it. That was the story. He was the majority in Ferguson. It may have cost us a few million YouTube clicks, but it was the truth. Bob was crestfallen the following day. He was taking it hard that he'd snored through the evening's mayhem. Don't worry, man. Apnea is a bitch, I said. You really should see a doctor about it, though. Ah, oh, shit, he moaned. I feel really bad. Don't worry, man, I repeated, pointing to the TV behind the hotel bar. Look. Missouri Governor Jay Nixon was at a local church announcing that the state of emergency would be back in effect that evening at midnight. This is a test. The eyes of the world are watching, he said. This guy's a real marshmallow, Bob said. 
Yeah, he's on again, off again, I said. Sends in the commandos, pulls them out, lets the town burn. You don't think St. Louis and Ferguson know that? You don't think they're coming out tonight? It was a sure bet they were coming out tonight. Over at the concierge desk, the retinue of the right Reverend Al Sharpton was already checking in. It was on. The riot and the shit show. Welcome in, Al. That evening, there was heavy police presence in Ferguson, and West Florissant was completely blocked off to traffic. We pulled up to a county officer at a gas station that marked the perimeter and produced the credential. News media. Press. Official identification. He looked at us with an eyebrow raised. You want to go in there, he asked, incredulous. It's the job. Suit yourself, but I'm warning you, there's no telling if they're going to behave like animals. You're on your own. The crowd was pulsing, expectant, hostile, black. The media was there, a swarm of them, white. We stood under the awning of a boarded-up chop suey joint, readying our gear, game planning, convincing ourselves to stay out of the way, no meddling, no heroics. A man out at this hour is a menace. Who else would be out at this hour? Good people are home in bed. Their doors locked. Their televisions tuned to this. A group of strong-looking young men were muttering amongst themselves. Some motherfucker's getting hurt tonight. Malik Shabazz, the national chairman of the new Black Panther Party, seemed to take them at their word and implored the men through a bullhorn to please respect the curfew. No violence, my brothers. Please go home. Ultimately, it wasn't Shabazz who convinced them, but seemingly God himself. Minutes before the curfew deadline was to take effect, the heavens opened and heavy rains began to fall. Almost instantly, West Florissant Avenue was washed clean and largely deserted, but not completely. A few dozen of the most devout remained. And wait, who's that bebopping along the avenue, sippy cup in hand, humming and shouting, palm slapping and sightseeing, taking in the evening scenery? It was good old Brian. He gave a wide smile. Take it easy, baby, he said. Take it slow. Get home safe. And off he disappeared into the crowd. The police again mustered in armored vehicles at the south end of the avenue. The protesters massed to the north. Bob went west near the beauty shop and Matt and I to the east behind the rampart of the Chinese restaurant. At precisely midnight, the rain stopped as quickly as it had come and the imperious voice of power, a white voice, booming through some unseen loudspeaker. You must disperse immediately. Now, this is an order. You are subject to arrest or other actions. The most rowdy, committed, and possessed mocked the police. Here's the finger, motherfucker. Here's a rock cocksucker. No justice. No peace, bitches. They were egged on, encouraged, enticed by the gaggle of media, white reporters with cameras and recording devices who were making stars of them, instantly live-streaming their antics across the planet. And the protesters knew it. They began shouting, not at the police, but into the lenses. Just lay some music under it, and you had yourself a rap video. 500 yards away, flanked to the east of the police, were the less adventurous members of the media, mostly mainstream, who weren't about to risk their good clothes in the muck and lather of the street. They stood behind metal barricades in the parking lot at McDonald's, looking from a distance like veal calves in a holding pen. This was the official media section where one could observe the action under the protection of the local police force. And Christ, 
What seats for the shit show? The reporters in the street filming the protesters had their backs to the police, conspicuously exposed and vulnerable, but knowing full well that the cops would not open up on them. When all is said and done, white people, even liberal ones, trust authority, have a deep-seated belief in it. The police would not blast a group of them. They knew it. Somewhere in their lies, privilege. The black protesters understood the racial calculus as well. With the mob of white reporters as a protective buffer, they grew bolder. Those hiding in the shadows drifted back onto the street. Soon they were throwing objects, taunting the police to let it rip. No one was backing down. Clearly, TV was making things worse. Being a reporter requires some common sense and responsibility, but all that seemed to have vanished into the night. Shut it down, a reporter from Texas shouted to his cameraman. He turned to me. This is disgusting. It was. I liked that man and I shook his hand. We too had stopped filming the protesters for that very reason, but we had not stopped filming the scene. We backed away, allowing for the showdown at high midnight. Maybe we were no better than those shooting the close-ups. Probably not, but history was unfolding nevertheless. You must disperse immediately. Now, this is an order. You are subject to arrest or other actions. Fuck the police! You must disperse immediately. Now, this is an order. You are subject to arrest or other actions. Again, fuck the police. And again, this soundtrack looped for a few minutes. Finally, their patience exhausted, the police let it rip. Tear gas cartridges and rubber bullets came flying from the armored vehicles. A white female reporter or blogger or sightseer with a small, expensive-looking camera was struck in the stomach, and she knelt on the pavement near us, whimpering. The governor had promised earlier that afternoon that authorities would not use tear gas or rubber bullets. Media in the calf pen reported that the canisters were smoke bombs, but they sure smelled like tear gas to me. In the pandemonium, I made out Bob's silhouette across the street, a silver ghost entombed in a cloud of gas. They were screaming from the shadows. The guns were out now. A few hundred feet away, some punk shot into the crowd. Matt and I waited a moment to be sure the gunfire had stopped before running toward the corner, just in time to see a limp body being tossed into the back of a car and whisked away. Calm and steady, the police held their fire. Their armored vehicles began rumbling toward the mob, toward us, toward the violence. I called Bob on the cell phone. He was lost somewhere amid the smoke and shouting. Let's back the fuck out of here now. Meet us at the truck. We made it back to the hotel in time to catch the bartender wiping up. It was a bizarre juxtaposition. The charred and shattered shopping district of West Florissant and the crimson-tiled reflecting pool of the Four Seasons. The black desperation at street level and the noble undertaking of white civilization far above it tastefully decorated in chromium and hardwoods. The bartender, a young black man, noticing our dishevelment and wild eyes, gave a knowing nod. What do y'all have, gentlemen? Let me get a gin and juice, bartender, make it a double. On the house, he said, sliding the highball my way. Messed up out there, huh? That ain't the half of it, dude. Tell the world what you saw here, he said in a whisper. Tell them black lives matter. 
Black Lives Matter. It was the first time I remember having heard the phrase, and I instantly understood what it meant. Equal treatment and equal justice. Nothing less, nothing more. What was there to debate about that? The great American ideal. Black Lives Matter. It was the first time I'd heard it, but not the last. Certainly not the last. Thank you for listening to the Red Shovel Studio Network featuring the Drew and Mike Show, ML Soul of Detroit, and No Filter Sports. This is the No Bullshit News Hour. Download us on iTunes or Google Play, and we'll talk with you next week. And try to remember, love one another. Vive la Poland! Dobre Jen! You know I'm parting my ass off right now.